0: Episode 4 Hedging Bets. Act 1 Rolling the Dice. In the last episode, we talked a lot about risks and how to reduce them. About people who smoke cigarettes, want to quit, and end up using an alternative product that provides them with a safer substitute. Incidentally, we'll start this episode by talking about something that inverts this relationship. Without risk, it makes no sense whatsoever. Gambling is not about the money, it's about the risk. It's a popular saying. Without the risk of losing money, gambling, as its name suggests, would be devoid of meaning. Take the variability of a game involving playing cards. Just the mere physical cards, 52 of them, creates a finite yet very large variability of combinations. Ten years ago, a user on Reddit described the variables of a 52 factorial as follows. Quote, say that there exists 10 billion people on every planet, 1 billion planets in every solar system, 200 billion solar systems in every galaxy, and 500 billion galaxies in the universe. If every single person on every planet that has been shuffling decks of cards completely at random at 1 million shuffles per second since the beginning of time, every possible deck combination would still yet to have been shuffled. End of quote. A Las Vegas casino shuffles five decks of cards in a game of blackjack, meaning the possible combinations, which is over 80 unvigintillion, a number I had no idea even existed until I looked it up, would have to be multiplied by five. Now consider a game of poker, in which there are billions of possibilities of betting on the end result, based on the five rounds played in just one match. This makes it possible, but highly unlikely, that one game of poker will ever be the same as another because the human factor of risk is taken into account. Not just because the numbers are different, but because as humans we evaluate risk differently. To you, losing $100 will mean very different things than it might to your neighbor. Humanity has a fascination with betting. We even use it in arguments. Who of us hasn't been so sure of themselves that they offered a bet to settle the dispute, even when that can create awkward situations? Former U.S. presidential candidate and now Senator Mitt Romney, when arguing with Texas Governor Rick Perry in 2012, found that out the hard way.
1: It said in there that your mandate in Massachusetts, which should be the model for the country, and I know it came out of of the the reprint of the book, but you know, I'm just saying you were for individual mandates, my friend. You know what? You've raised that before, Rick, and. Uh... Still, it, was, it was true then. No, no. <laughs> it's true now. Rick, I'll, I'll tell you what. 10000 bucks. $10,000 bet? I'm not in the betting business. Oh, but okay, I'll, I'll okay. show you this. I wrote the, I'll, I'll show I wrote, you the book. I, I've got the book. And, uh... and we'll show you...
0: Mitt Romney was perceived as out of touch by suggesting a bet of $10,000, even though suggesting a bet as a political debate tactic wouldn't have worked well either way. That aside, we have a cultural fascination with gambling expressed easily by the fact that it's everywhere in movies. Kevin Spacey in the movie 21. You ever studied uh, blackjack? Uh, No. Oh, well, it's really
2: simple,
1: actually. You play against the dealer. Um, You're given two cards. Face cards are worth 10 points. The closest to 21 wins. If you go over, you lose. If the dealer goes over, they lose.
0: Brad Pitt in Ocean's Eleven, a movie incidentally centered around robbing casinos.
1: Guys, what's the first lesson in poker? Never
0: bet
3: on the, uh... No, uh, leave emotion at the door.
0: That's right, Topher.
1: Today's lesson, how to draw out the bluff. That much money, this early in the game, I'm saying he's holding nothing better than a pair of face cards.
0: Oh yes, and of course, I wasn't gonna shy away from yet another Mark Wahlberg movie, The Gambler.
3: Oh look at him. There's no limit. He wants to fuck a fight and I'm not interested in either. Please, steal the cards. It's for your protection. For my protection? Fuck my protection, all right? You don't come here for fucking protection from yourself, you come here for the fucking opposite and here I am, so please, feel the cards, thank you.
0: And of course, there's a casino scene in James Bond's Dr. No that incidentally became one of the most recognized hits in cinematic history.
4: I admire your courage, Miss... Uh...
3: Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr...
1: Bond.
0: James Bond.
3: Mr. Bond, I
1: suppose you wouldn't care to um,
3: raise the limit? I have no objection.
0: There's a lot of movies involving casinos. Mississippi Grind, Uncut Gems, The Card Counter, Casino Real, The Hangover, Rain Man, Vegas Vacation, Molly's Game, Atlantic City, Rounders, California Split, Heart 8, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The list goes on. Casinos, like them or not, are cool. It's not just the classy palaces in Monaco. Even the tacky and flashy darkroom casinos excite us with their flashing lights and dingling music, awakening in us a childlike obsession with toys and noises. One of the earliest known mentions of gambling is from ancient China, when players participated in a game using wooden tiles. Gambling was also a part of life in ancient Egypt, Greece and Japan. Some history of gambling is outlined in the YouTube video The History of Gambling in Casinos, by the All-American Casino
3: Guide. The concept of gambling is very simple and consists of three basic elements, a wager, an event with an uncertain outcome, and of course, a prize. Due to the simplicity, it may not be so surprising to learn that gambling dates back to the prehistoric era and has emerged in basically every single society on Earth. The earliest evidence of gambling dates back to the Paleolithic era, commonly known as the Stone Age which was a period that extended from approximately 3 million to 12,000 years ago. One of the earliest gambling items was the astragali, small animal bones which were marked and functioned similar to dice. In fact, the earliest six-sided die dates back to 3000 BC Mesopotamia, and were based on these astragali. Playing cards, however, were not invented until much later, in the 9th century, in China, during the Tang Dynasty. Before being printed on paper or plastic, the Chinese used woodblock printing, or leaves. Cards made their way across the world in the following centuries, and the first evidence of them being introduced in Western culture was 14th century Southern Europe, through North Africa, where the four suits that we're familiar with today originated. The first casino in recorded history was the Rodotto in Venice, established in 1638. However, at the time, it was not called a casino, but simply a gambling house.
0: By the way, that casino was closed in 1774 because the government alleged that it was impoverishing the locals. The first British-American settlers brought gambling to North America, where lotteries and horse races made up the majority of gambling activities, outside of the saloons and gambling houses that we know all so well from Westerns. According to the Colonial Williamsburg Visitor Center, which has a research page, quote, In New England, Puritans took the dim view of the vice. Cotton Mather called it a great dishonor of God. The prevailing view was that gambling was inherently sinful and led men from God's grace. Gaming was also a door and a window through which man would pass to worse sins. The pilgrims established punishments ranging from substantial fines to whippings. Rules, sermons and the lash, however, couldn't control human nature. By the 1670s, Gambling was a well-established feature and irritant of New England life, End of quote. During the American Revolution, gambling turned out to be a bit of a problem child for soldier morale, which is why General Washington issued a military directive in 1776 saying, quote, all officers, non-commissioned officers and soldiers are positively forbid playing at cards or other games of chance. At this time of public distress, men may find enough to do in the service of their God and their country Without abandoning themselves to vice and immorality. End of quote. Not only did American Revolutionary soldiers not follow the edict of General Washington, neither did soldiers of the British Crown. An English officer around the same time wrote, quote, The men are given to great gambling, and most shan't have a coin left, even parting with their shirts at the dice and sundry card games. End of quote. Supposedly, one army was gambling a little less and came out on top of the equation. In fact, the book, Puritans at Play, Leisure and Recreation in Early New England by Bruce C. Daniels from the Department of History in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Winnipeg found that 1769 restrictions on lotteries by the British Crown became one of the many issues that fueled tensions between the colonies and Britain before the American Revolution. It was in the 19th century that opposition to gambling arose, an even more moralizing and puritanical approach that said that gambling in any way, shape or form should be illegal which made card games and roulette disappear into the shadows of Prohibition. That, however, is not the situation we see today. I talked to Guy Bentley, director of consumer freedom at the Reason Foundation, an American libertarian think tank.
1: In general, the U.S. is a more liberalized regime than many other parts of the world, not as liberalized as, say, uh, the United Kingdom, which does have a very liberalized gambling market although the government is seeking to tighten that up. So whilst there is a lot of variety in gambling regulation and also taxation within the United States, um, it, you will find it is generally more liberal uh, than many other places across the
0: world. The rather liberal approach towards gambling came gradually over time, says Bentley, a Native American tribal land historically getting the rights to set up their own gaming venues. This has extended to states as a whole with state governments now also setting up their own casinos to rival private competition.
1: One of the most significant prohibitions on gambling, though, was the prohibition on sports betting um, across the United States, introduced in uh, the early 1990s. Um, This was uh, so-called PASPA, the uh, Professional Amateur and Sports Protection Act. And what this in effect did was ban states from legalizing sports betting. So you could still bet on sports, for instance, in Nevada, which already had legal sports betting, but it prevented other states from following suit. The reasoning behind this was sort of inherent to the name to protect the integrity of sports. That was the um, intent of the act itself. There was a widespread view that if you allow gambling on sports outcomes, that this opens games up to corruption. there was the famous White Sox scandal uh, in the 1920s with the World Series being uh, being corrupted and thrown. And throughout, you know, not just U.S. history, but uh, history of sports in many other countries, where there is major sports games, there's going to be gambling and people are going to be interested in those outcomes. And there is the potential for corruption and bribery. So the intent was to keep the integrity um, of, of, of sports games um, clean and safe so people could have confidence in the outcomes that that they were seeing. Um, This act did not really significantly change the rates of corruption or game fixing uh, that we saw around sports. And also it was blatantly unconstitutional. In the United States, there is the 10th Amendment to the Constitution in which uh, powers that are not explicitly given to the federal government are the prerogative of the states. So this was a clear violation of states' rights to regulate their own gaming industries. And uh, the Supreme Court uh, in 2018 struck that down, uh, giving states the ability to legalise sports betting. And more than 30 states have now done so. So we've seen a great expansion of freedom to bet on sports, and we have not seen upticks in corruption or game-fixing game at all. Um, we've, in fact, seen that people can now place bets confidently in the legitimate market rather than offshore betting websites, which were very prominent um, across uh, um, gamblers in the United States using sites based in the Dominican Republic or Latin America, uh, which can give you worse odds. You know, you don't have the safety in terms of the kind of bets you're placing. Uh, So we have seen a great expansion of freedom and also the ability of law enforcement and other organizations to look at for instance suspicious betting patterns and movements of bets to detect any possible uh, corruption there might be so fortunately in a lot of areas of consumer freedom whether that's you know, vaping or alcohol uh, we're often seeing a, a retraction of freedom um, and a, an assault on freedom but this is an area where fortunately we've seen an expansion of freedom and consumer choice Um, that this hasn't come without some serious opposition, which does seem to be gathering some momentum.
0: As gambling in the United States has become increasingly accessible, the opposition to it by prohibitionists has also become louder. One of the strongest voices against gambling legality was the aptly named National Coalition Against Legalized Gambling, which was integrated and renamed in 2008 into Stop Predatory Gambling. It's a stunning rename, arguably because National Coalition Against Legalized Gambling was in fact a more transparent name. Predatory gambling? Who wouldn't be against that? But what is so telling is that it is hard to find an instance of legal gambling that the Stop Predatory Gambling group is for, making it seem as if they consider any legal gambling as predatory. The website of StopPredatoryGambling.org outlines that it is bipartisan by having left-leaning groups such as Progressive Democrats of America as well as right-leaning groups such as Concerned Women for America and Focus on the Family as members. They also outline that their members are members of religious communities and provide a list including Roman Catholics, United Methodists, Southern Baptists, Church of Latter-day Saints, Universalist Unitarians, Lutherans, American Jews, Episcopalians, United Church of Christ, American Muslims, Seventh-day Adventists, Presbyterians, and Greek Orthodox. Now this might just be me misunderstanding an American effort to sound inclusive. But pointing out the religious affiliation of its members and the bipartisan approach it takes leads me to believe that this anti gambling group is not too dissimilar to the temperance groups that wanted to ban all gambling 200 years ago. Here's excerpts of a promotional video from one of their events.
1: Gambling is a menace to society, deadly to the best interests of moral, social, economic, and spiritual life, destructive
3: of good government and good stewardship. As serious an addiction, Okay, as dangerous as addiction as opioids, cocaine, and heroin. Prey on the powerless, they prey on hope, but they prey on hope that we know is hopeless.
0: I mean, Newsweek, this is a cover story, on Newsweek, 10 years ago. There's no demonstration that casinos in any way are creating economic development.
3: That when industry contains the seeds of its own destruction, an eventual rollback led by grassroots citizens is not only possible, it's inevitable.
0: Stop Predatory Gambling writes on its website, quote, What separates commercialized gambling from every other business, including vices like alcohol and tobacco, is it's a big con game. It's a form of consumer financial fraud and exploitation, similar to price gouging and false advertising. I asked Guy Bentley about this group and which other anti-gambling activists exist.
1: There's definitely some overlap, um, particularly with, I think, the the temperance organizations. A lot of these Um, stemming from religious organizations in the 19th and early 20th century. Um, If we look, for instance, at the National Coalition Against Legalized Gambling, um, that was formed by Tom Gray, who was a Methodist minister. um, And that was uh, eventually became part of the Stop Predatory Gambling Foundation in 2008, uh, who interestingly actually have their headquarters in the United Methodist Building in Washington, D.C., Um, So you can track uh, a pretty clear lineage um, from religious objections to gambling. Um, However, you also have a a much newer uh, constituency arguing against either legalized gambling or gambling liberalization or arguing for restrictions on certain types of gambling or marketing. Uh, And that is in academia. For instance, we have centers like the Rutgers University Center for Gambling Studies. Um, There's the UCLA uh, Gambling Studies Program. A lot of their work does focus on gambling addiction, but also on regulation. And uh, you can pretty clearly see that the um, arguments all cut in one direction, which is for greater restriction um, of access to gambling and gambling products. So you have a sort of uh, unification of old-school religious and moral objections to gambling, and then a sort of new progressive case against gambling, which is rooted you know, in broadly what they would call public health.
0: Opposition to gambling is bipartisan. You will find left-wing members of parliament questioning the legality of gambling, based on the effects on marginalized communities. And right-wing pundits such as Jordan Peterson, here as a guest on the BBC, asking about the moral justification for it. The
3: question is, in part, like:
2: is there any social good that these machines produce? It's very difficult to make a case that there's any social good that's associated with gambling. It's a
1: strange one, particularly coming from Jordan Peterson, who presents himself in a somewhat classical liberal light, that um, unless something provides a collective social utility, it's perfectly legitimate to prohibit it. Um, the obvious benefit is to the individual who is engaging in this uh, behavior and spending their money on what they want to spend their money on, which is a recreational activity. People often talk about uh, gambling and people losing money on gambling, um, but that's really the wrong way to to frame uh, the argument. What gambling losses are are spent. Ban- gambling is a recreational activity in which you spend money. Sometimes you win money, sometimes you lose money. The fact that you um, have a possibility of winning or losing money makes it you know, no different from any other recreational activity. If you go to a bar and spend money on alcohol, you are not losing money on alcohol. You're per- purchasing a product. And gambling is a recreational service. Um, so, the, the real utility is to the consumer and also those who are employed in the industry um, providing this service. Um, we do not need a collective justification about social benefits, but also there are social benefits to gambling. Um, for instance, in uh, its social form, um, gambling uh, cannot just be an individual pursuit, it's often uh, a pursuit done with friends, whether that's um, uh, playing poker or roulette or betting on sports or even playing slot machines uh, um, with friends in a, in a casino. This is, isn't always, um, and not even most of the time, I think, a solitary activity. So I think it's a very dangerous idea um, to put about that unless you can provide an overwhelming collective social utility to an activity or a product, that then it's perfectly liable for prohibition. That cuts against um, all the liberal instincts we've inherited from John Stuart Mill, that as long as you are not causing direct physical or financial harm to others,
0: um, you should be at liberty to live life in your own way. And so let's talk about some of the consequences that gambling can have and, 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 and sort of sort of look at it, because I assume this plays into the arguments of those people who would, would like to, to outlaw it. There are people who have gambling addictions. There's hotlines for people to call, Um, there is counseling, there's people who see therapists about this, there's people who ruin themselves financially uh, because of gambling. And some of the news reports I've seen often mention also individual cases of people who really ruin themselves and, and their families as a result of a gambling addiction. Does that represent a significant enough amount of people that... It it might make sense to reevaluate gambling as a whole. First off, if somebody has a, a gambling addiction
1: or a severe problem with gambling that has caused them enormous um, emotional, psychological, and financial distress, um, each of those cases are a tragedy in in of itself. You know, for that person, the pro- you know it's a hundred percent rate for that individual of of problem gambling. So, as as with almost any activity that. Um, provide some amount of pleasure or entertainment, there can be risks and downsides, um, as as we see in many other products, whether that's alcohol or drugs or so on. So each of those should be taken seriously um, and taken into account. But I think what's important to recognize when we're talking about uh, the legal situation of gambling, whether to legalize or liberalize gambling, and the problem of gambling addiction, is that we do find consistently that the legal regime, the legal status of gambling, bears very little relationship to the rate of problem gambling or pathological gambling in society. And that's a really important point to hammer home. Uh, For instance, there was a a quite extensive study in 2012 that uh, found that really across um, uh, countries, the standardized past year rate of problem gambling ranges from 0.5 to 7.6%, with the average being about um, 2.3% across all countries. Um, So there's quite a variation between countries. Um, But when we look at China, for instance, where gambling is illegal, the rate of pathological gambling, this is the most sort of severe form of gambling addiction, not being, you know, at risk of problem gambling or occasionally having a problem with gambling really severe problem with gambling um that's one of the highest if not the highest rates in the world um, sometimes ranging up to four percent um to give some context the uk's rate of pathological problem gambling is somewhere in the region of 0.2 percent, and the uk has a very liberalized um, regime of gambling so so gambling addiction can be a severe problem but it there's very little relationship to the legal regime of uh, of gambling. And for instance, if we take the United States, you bring up a very good point about uh, seeing lots of new headlines and so on, fearing that in the wake of sports betting legalization, that there has been a dramatic increase uh, in problem gambling and gambling addiction. Um, We've seen, for instance, calls to gambling addiction hotlines um, skyrocket in places like New Jersey, New York. That's true. The calls to those hotlines have um, skyrocketed. One, I think you can say that since sports betting has been legalized, more people are actually aware of these kind of services because they are quite heavily put out there. And so people might, um, uh, who have a problem, might be newly aware that there are services for them. And also people who are getting into this for the first time, you know, Whether they actually have a problem or not, it's not distinguished whether those calls are from people who actually have a problem or people who might have lost some money and then are just worried about what they might do in the future. But to sort of highlight some of the kind of panic that's been going on around this, um, it's interesting to highlight an instance from earlier this year where there were a series of headlines based on um, some forthcoming analysis, which has since been released by, um, by Rutgers, Looking at problem gambling, particularly in New Jersey. And uh, I think it was Vox that uh, was uh, particularly vociferous on the subject, saying that um, uh, America had made a bad bet on sports betting liberalization, uh, and quoted this research as saying that um, 13% of uh, the state had a gambling problem, according to this research. Well, what when we actually look at the data of what happened was that this this group from Rutgers they conducted uh, an analysis in twenty seventeen looking at rates of problem gambling in the state of New Jersey, and then conducted uh, some analysis measuring for twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, which is what Vox was um, was measuring, and in fact when we compare twenty seventeen so pre legalization of sports betting uh, in New Jersey to twenty 20 and 2021, um, where sports betting had been legalized for a few years then, sports betting was legalized in 2018, we actually find that the rate of um, uh, low risk and moderate gambling, uh, which is what Vox was citing, fell from 15% to 13%. So this is sort of people who might be at risk, uh, at a low or moderate risk um, for problem gambling. And we also find the rate of um, severe gambling problems also fell from 6.3% to 5.6%. So completely left out of the context of this discussion from the new Rutgers analysis was comparing to what the situation was before legalization. So we have a very clear case that this huge panic quoting a headline number, not even a severe problem gambling, but low or moderate risk gambling, that in both of those categories, gambling addiction and problem gambling fell post legalization. So we are getting a very distorted picture of what uh, a realm of gambling liberalization looks like. And again, what's more goes to the point, the problem of, of uh, gambling addiction and problem gambling is fairly stable in societies, regardless of what the legal regime regime is. And the solution to that or how to ameliorate that is to use some of the revenue that states or national governments generate from the gambling industry to indeed fund gambling addiction services. Um, there's cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy that can really help those who have a severe gambling problem. Uh, I think it's perfectly legitimate for the government to have helplines, to have um, warnings and so on about, you know, if you're worried that you might be getting into a dangerous situation with gambling, that is all perfectly legitimate. And also gambling operators, also have a series of mechanisms to help players and clients uh, monitor their gambling.
0: Gambling, just like many of the other so-called vices we talk about in the series, does not just disappear because it's banned. What legalized gambling has done is, yes, make it more accessible to those people who seek to do it legally. Where legal gambling is available, we get to have more data and rules to understand how to avoid problem gambling and also boost economic growth. Comprehensive research has found that legal online gambling will add $22.4 billion to the gross domestic product of the United States. What else is there to say? Ka-ching!
5: Act 2.
0: You're so plain. While the United States has enjoyed the availability of legal online gambling, a different type of paternalism has made an appearance. It's called plain packaging. Let me lay out the premise for you. The argument for plain packaging is that the marketing of products is predominantly predatory. Shiny colors, bombastic slogans, enticing fonts, product packaging is designed to make us buy a product and consume it. Other marketing tricks consist of making a product look sleek and classy. What plain packaging does is remove any type of appealing marketing, marketing which in itself is considered manipulation. The American legal scholar Cass Sunstein, who was the administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under the Obama administration, published an essay entitled Fifty Shades of Manipulation, in which he labels conventional marketing as manipulation. He writes, for instance, quote, "...it is important to acknowledge that in the commercial realm, manipulation is widespread. It is part of the basic enterprise." End of quote. Where plain packaging starts can be as simple as breakfast cereal.
4: Obesity experts are calling for cartoon characters on unhealthy food to be banned from packaging following concerns they encourage children to eat junk food. Researchers say marketing restrictions are needed to reduce the appeal of ice cream, chocolate and sugary cereal. Characters including the Paddle Pop Lion, Nesquik Bunny and the Cocoa Pops Monkey are among those under fire. Kellogg's insists the Coco Pops monkey only appears in supermarkets where parents are the shoppers.
0: This is a real story. Tony the Tiger and other breakfast cereal cartoon characters have been banned in Mexico since 2021. And officials in Mexico City are not holding back. After the law was put into place, authorities seized 380,000 boxes of Cornflakes, Special K and other Kellogg's cereal brands for violating the new rules. But okay, the boxes without cartoon characters aren't plain packaged. But another product already has been. Tobacco. In Australia, the UK, France or the Netherlands, plain packaging for tobacco products is already a reality. The argument here, again, is to protect public health. Australia was the first one to implement it. In 2011, they passed a plain packaging law. And what that means is this. Cigarettes come in packaging like this. Pretty drab colouring, messaging the Australian government. writes, pictures it chooses. The brand name there really relegated to the bottom. Australia's plain packaging law banned tobacco company branding from packaging and replaced it with upsetting photos, such as the toe tack on a corpse, the cancerous mouth, the nightmarish eyeball, (laughs) or the diseased lung. Now, uh, yes, I'm pretty sure I would find a healthy lung disgusting, but... (laughs) But... That thing does look like you're trying to breathe through baked ziti, so just just take take that down. Just take, take it down. John Oliver's humor aside here, the measure wasn't effective in cutting smoking rates, even though the government in Australia liked to pretend that already declining smoking rates were pushed down further by plain packaging. What happened, however, is that tobacco consumers will be looking at the packaging less. In 2018, an Oxford University study analyzed how many consumers were actually looking at alcohol warning labels. Quote, Eye tracking identified that 60% of participants looked at the current in-market alcohol warning label. The current study casts doubts on predominant practices which have been used to evaluate alcohol warning labels. Awareness cannot be used to assess warning label effectiveness in isolation in cases where attention does not occur 100% of the time. End of quote. When I myself started writing about plain packaging years ago, not only did I crunch the numbers and found that it did not make sense, I also asked the question, If tobacco products will be plain packaged, what stops us from doing the same thing to other items? Quickly, I was dismissed as having fallen for a slippery slope. I suppose it was one of those slippery slopes that was one, until it wasn't. As early as 2018, shortly after Australia had introduced plain packaging for tobacco, which then spread to Europe, public health researchers in New Zealand, with an $800,000 government grant to conduct their research on so-called junk food marketing, concluded that, Quote, given that over two-thirds of marketing is in the form of food packaging, consideration should be given to plain packaging in some specific cases, for instance, sugar or sweetened beverages, as a highly effective intervention in this arena. End of quote. The researchers, public health advocates who are outspoken against the availability of junk food, conclude that children are too exposed to junk food marketing. What's the marketing, you might ask? The mere availability of brands when they hold a can of soda in their hands, They essentially extended branding itself, the fact that there is a brand logo and representation, into marketing, making it almost a constant. They changed the goalpost to such an extent that marketing becomes literally pervasive. This type of reasoning sets the academic standard, and from there, you move to changing the goalpost in the media. First, it was tobacco. In 2012, Australia was the first country to introduce plain packaging for cigarettes. Other countries, like the UK, followed. Now alcohol and sugary products are feeling the weight of regulation. Minimum alcohol pricing laws and a new sugar tax will take effect this year in England, all in the cause of improving people's health. It's left companies and health experts wondering if the food and drink packaging of the future will end up looking more like this.
5: In the UK, the tension around sugar is only just starting. We are just starting to take action. If, as a result of all this action, there's no changes in in these types of products, in their marketing, in the package, how they're packaged, etc. then I think we potentially could in the future look at plain packaging.
0: Some in the British Medical Association have issued a similar call. Here's ultimately how the construction of a public health scare works as a tactic. First, you take a government or philanthropic grant to write a report that finds a public health problem where there is none. So you fiddle with the numbers just like Movendi did with its Alcor report in Canada, to create headlines. With those headlines, you generate media interest, find an obese child to go with the news reporting, get a member of parliament to take action in committee. Any opposition to the measure now debated in parliament is then branded as being pro-industry or not thinking of the children. Then you implement the measure which incidentally will have little effect on behavior, and then you move on to the next restrictive measure until you reach the inevitable conclusion that we've tried everything, so we need prohibition. As a blueprint for public policymaking, it's ingenious or insidious. Pick your poison on word. outsourcing the fun police. When I started writing this show, I used the word fun police to find a way to describe neo-prohibitionists in a short, punchy way. They oppose fun that people are having and they're happy to involve the police in their efforts to prohibit a lifestyle they disapprove of. What I didn't think was that in my research, I would find the most accurate description of a fun police. To unpack this story, we have to start from the beginning and in a place I did not think we were going to start on the TV show Shark Tank, with a fast-talking entrepreneur with a niche idea.
3: Hey Sharks, my name is Bonham Laskin. I am from Lakewood, New Jersey, and I'm seeking $300,000 in exchange for 5% of my company. Wow. Swimpley. Swimpley is the first of its kind online marketplace for pool sharing, where anyone can book their own private pool by the hour, whenever they want, from people who own a pool, but don't use it too often. to so say you're like my good friend, Jesse. Jesse's like most Americans and can't afford his own private pool. All he has to do is visit our website or app, find a pool, lock it in. And just like that, Jesse's booked himself the perfect poolside day, and pool owners can now monetize their pool's downtime, even make a profit.
0: This idea made it out of a TV show appearance with Mark Cuban and onto the real world, with users and hosts flocking to the platform the same way they did with Airbnb.
2: After its remarkable debut, Swimply raised $10 million from eager investors and is now able to offer owners property insurance. That was a game changer. It's now seeing nearly five times the revenue from a year ago. The number of hosts surged nearly 350 percent to 15,000, and the number of users jumped over 400 percent to about half a million. <laughs> were you
0: surprised at how much
2: demand there was for your pool? I was shocked. It was to the point where it didn't matter whether it was a weekday or a weekend. The bookings were just coming back to back.
0: However, not everyone's enjoying the pool parties that people are throwing. In fact, some local governments in the United States have gone after Swimply hosts with legal action, fines and restrictions.
5: I'm Cameron Kilberg. I'm head of legal and government relations for Swimply, So I run all of our legal issues, concerns, and all of our government relations. So that's all the regulatory compliance, <coughs> zoning, and other issues that might occur related to our product.
0: Kilberg explains that just like Airbnb, Swimpy faces local zoning restrictions, which means that local governments and communities try to limit the availability of rentals because they dislike the influx of outsiders to the community. This is not a new problem. The fight of Airbnb versus hotels has been a conversation for well over a decade. Swimpley, however, faces even more problems with their business model. You
5: probably have over a thousand pools on average in a state. Pools or hot tub spas on the Airbnb platform per state. Uh, they're not being called public pools. But interestingly enough, the Swimpleys are being told on the pool rentals that they are public pools. And that comes with a whole other bag of regulations and issues. And so we are spending a lot of time fighting this legally erroneous uh, statement that we're a public pool and something that the Airbnbs and short-term rentals of the world have not been seeing.
0: It's a fascinating double standard. If you rent your home on Airbnb with a pool, there are rules and regulations in place that let you do that. However, if you rent out just your own pool, some regulators believe that you are now operating a commercial pool and thus need specific licenses, maybe a lifeguard, and need issuances of permits that many hosts don't even have access to.
5: And we, we've had complaints in certain jurisdictions that, you know, I don't want to call anyone out specifically, but uh, it'll be kids, you know, playing in the backyard. And the noise, we don't want this noise. I'm like, well, you know, as I say, it's coming the nuisance. You're in a residential neighborhood with families and kids, and whether it's that's family's own kids or they have guests over, be it via Swimpley or Airbnb or just their own guests. Noise in the afternoon using your outdoor backyard should not be a complaint. We should also not be seeing, in this modern era of 2023, should we be seeing people saying they don't fit into my neighborhood and then have concerns that they're there.
0: People who don't fit in the neighborhood, that's a euphemism. My colleague Stephen Kent wrote in the Washington Examiner about a case in the Montgomery County in Pennsylvania where outsiders to the community were considered as a nuisance. He writes in his piece, quote, this language feels awfully coded for the 86.7% white suburb in a county where 60% of residents are Democrats and merely 14 are registered Republicans. It's doubtful that the worrisome outsiders they speak of in town meetings are similarly homogenous, of quote. And he also writes, quote, but then again, this is happening in a neighborhood that infamously sought to ban dogs from barking in 2019. Yeah, that's a real story. I talked to Brittany, a Swimply host in Portland, Oregon, has faced backlash from her neighbors about her renting out her pool even though she is on a dead end street and only one neighbor can even see her pool which is not visible from the street.
2: We learned our lessons along the way like how many guests we felt comfortable with, how many cars, how late at night etc but we're now in a comfortable sweet spot. Most of our guests are families or kids birthday parties but after about a year of hosting We started receiving complaints from neighbors, um, kind of right at the edge of our gate. They're at the end of the dead end street. And their complaint was that they didn't like the increase in traffic going in and out of our driveway. Like I said, they can't see our pool. They can't hear our pool. Um, So it was really just sort of focused on traffic. So we tried to work with them and be neighborly and agreed to limit the number of guests and vehicles. Uh, They still were not satisfied. They wanted us to stop renting completely, and we didn't think that was fair or necessary. So they filed a code complaint with the county, which then began sending us letters and fining us. And the complaint was that we were operating a business in a residential zone and needed a permanent exception. So we tried to work with the county and talking with planning and zoning and even county council. And coincidentally, the county had just formally adopted regulations allowing Airbnbs, which had had operated unregulated for decades. So really, our argument was that if you're going to allow someone to rent a house with a pool, uh, which you can do on Airbnb, you can just rent it for a day if it's a house with a pool, You have to also allow people to rent just the house's pool. The county objected, saying that amenity rentals like ours hadn't been publicly vetted. And our response was that they had. It's all part of the same home-sharing economy and the same complaints they got about Airbnbs they would likely hear again about Swimpley. Um, We think we actually have a better argument than those against Airbnb And the primary complaint, according to all the records against Airbnb, is sort of the big parties that can be thrown. Well, we're home for every single Swimply rental. Nobody's throwing a big party. Nobody's spending the night. You know, we're fully in control and in charge the entire time. Um, And also Swimply rentals are limited to just a few hours during the day.
0: I also asked Brittany if she had conversations with her neighbors who were complaining to local authorities.
2: We were friendly for a while. Um in fact they would send their kids over for um swim lessons, but so they were comfortable using it, they were comfortable with the neighbors using it, but they didn't like um quote unquote strangers coming into the neighborhood. And they actually said, I thought this was funny, they said we were ruining the magic of the neighborhood by inviting outside people in.
0: In Brittany's case, it was a multitude of neighbors complaining about her pool rental. But sometimes, the fun police can only be one person, activating just the right people in government to shut you down. In the case of Annie Pansky, another swimply host, it was one specific host who had initiated the process. In the beginning, she just used the model of renting her pool, just like the others, With people in her community.
4: This all started out as a result of COVID, I I must say, and a little bit of Shark Tank. So there's some like Hollywood in it. Um, But during COVID, I was working from home and I was looking at our pool and being like, gosh, it's such a shame that no one is using it right now. I'm at home and it's just sitting there. So I reached out to all of my church mom friends and said, hey guys, I know that everything is shut down right now, but the one thing that's not is my pool. So please come bring your families. Mark, If you are green means that you're open to another family joining you, which we're all friends from church. And I was like, and if it red, then that means that, like, nope, this is we just want our privacy for COVID for safety.
0: Annie's pool has become a safe haven for many people, whether they're just trying to host a birthday party to women of Muslim faith, seeking privacy to swim by themselves or with their children, an option they do not have at public pools. But her story, as with that of Brittany's, took a turn.
4: Renting our pool gives us so much joy. And one of the first things that we did before we even started renting our pool was talk to our neighbors. We understand that can have an impact. We live in a tight neighborhood, so we're all kind of on top of each other, but it's also not a quiet neighborhood. We're directly underneath the airport. So there is a plane just about every 30 seconds that that noise takes over. Um, But even with traffic and with air traffic, we still understood that extra pool noise can have an impact. So we reached out to all of our neighbors, um, talked to them about what we were planning on doing. And there was one neighbor in particular that we knew has been prickly in the past, um, to use her husband's words. And so we talked with her and um, we actually brought her into the fold very quickly. She had a young daughter who was getting ready for college and we said, hey, if you want to earn some extra money, you can help us. Helping us open and close the pool is always a benefit. allows us to go out of town. Um, and so if you're up for that, and she was, and so we hired her on the offset. Um, but over the course of the last year, um, that her daughter has no longer worked with us. She went to college and we have learned that she has um, filed a complaint with the city. And as a result, um, the city came to us and said, you're operating a pool without a business license. You're operating a business without a business license. And we said, what business license do we need? And they said, well, there isn't one for you. So we're going to fine you a thousand dollars for every day that you operate. And we said, how are you going to prove that you operate? Yeah, it's, it's That's bananas. a
0: lot of money. That's
4: a, a It's a ton of money. It's way more than we make using Swimbleed.
0: Right. And what was your reaction to that? Because, I mean, it's interesting also that, you, that your first indication, that your first instinct is, okay, what, what, what license would you like me to get? You're trying to follow the rules, and yet you there's no way for you to actually do it, because there is none. <laughs>
4: this is part of the regulatory body of small towns in America that is – pervasive across the board. You have cities who lean in to um, what change looks like and what is new and what is upcoming. And they work to make sure that what they're doing regulatory-wise meets the needs of their community and also meets the needs of where we're headed as a country in the whole. So we have first-class cities all around us who have short-term rental policies and licenses and know how to regulate it. And they treat Airbnbs the same as a Swimply or a Sniff Spot or a Neighbor or a Turo. There are so many apps now where people can rent a backyard, a side yard, a swimming pool, a home, um, and cities have recognized that. The city that we live in has not. Um, and so before we actually um, started getting too far down the road with Swimply, we reached out to the city understanding that we probably would need a short-term rental license and asked we're ready to to file a business license, what do we need? And the city said we don't have anything for you. And they and so we said, well, what are what are Airbnb's doing? And we've learned through the course of the last year and a half that they're not doing anything. So all it takes is one neighbor in the city of Des Moines to complain and that's enough to put you on the radar of the zoning coding enforcement. And if you're on the radar of zone, zoning and code enforcement, they'll issue you a ticket for operating without a business license, even though that there is no business license currently to get.
0: Y- your neighbor also had a very specific way of complaining about the noise. You mentioned this earlier. Can you can yeah. you just uh, let us know how 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 she described it?
4: Yeah, she said the um, the shouts of joyous children make her feel like a prisoner in her own home
0: pool rentals, people placing a bet on a horse race, enjoying a piece of chocolate or a breakfast cereal. These are innocent activities. But oddly enough, they court the eyes of regulators and busybodies, prohibitionists and NIMBYs. Whether it's the idea that you know better how to run people's lives or if it's just that you cannot stand the sounds of joyous children, it seems that our immediate recourse has become the heavy hand of the regulator to solve the problem. Instead of talking to each other, solving problems as a community, communicating risks. We believe that we need to run to a government the same way we would have considered snitching to a school teacher to get our way. It makes you wonder, how long can we keep this up?
4: There is a degradation of neighborly love across America. And there is an increase of litigiousness. It is in deep, you know? Its roots are deep and we need to dig it out. We need to dig it out we need to go to our neighbors and we need to treat them with love and we need to show love and we need to start conversations and we need to start community because if we don't it's only going to get worse i don't see what you're seeing slowing down without people standing up and saying this is not okay because we will just keep on adding rules to the rule book
0: Fun Police is a Consumer Choice Center original podcast. Today's episode was written and researched by me, Bill Words. contributing research by Elizabeth Hicks and Emil Panjau, editing by Jair Losowski and myself. You can find the Reason Foundation, where Guy Bentley works, online on Reason.org. They also make educational videos on their YouTube channel, Reason TV. Check out our other podcasts, Consumer Choice Podcast and Consumer, spelled with EU, links in the description. Thank you for those who support our work with a donation, consumerchoicecenter.org donate, the last episode of this series will be out next week on Wednesday. Until then, stay clear of the Fun Police.